So over these next three weeks, starting today, we're doing um, another series on some of the big questions that people have about Christianity and the Bible. So they're kind of a slightly different kind of talk than we normally do here most other weeks. So that is my disclaimer, just in case you come away thinking, well, that was a bit weird. I'm sort of getting my retaliation in first, as the great Willie John McBride used to say. Anyway, if you want to catch any of those previous talks, they're all available on video and podcast on our website. Last time I spoke here on a Sunday, I mentioned my favourite Mark Twain quote, which is, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And obviously, that's a joke. If you're relatively new to the church, I always try and tell people when something that I've said is a joke, because otherwise they seem to have no way of telling. But I wonder whether it is also a joke in relation to the reports that we keep hearing about the death of the church. Have they been greatly exaggerated as well? And if you don't know what I mean by that, then the Spectator magazine looked at the most recent surveys of church attendance in this country. And based upon the current rate of decline, it projected that the year 2067, which is less than 50 years from now, would be the end of British Christianity. And given that the rate of decline is greater in the Church of England than other denominations, that Anglicanism would disappear in less than 15 years' time, 2033. Reports of the death of the church may not have been greatly exaggerated. So I thought we'd have a look together at that this morning, the death of the church. Uh, Sorry if that sounds a, a bit morbid, but if the spectator is right, then it's about time we did have a look, wouldn't you say? Now, this particular report that The Spectator was referring to found that over the past 40 years, Anglican churches have lost over half their congregations, Methodists have lost two-thirds, and the Catholics and United Reformed have lost even more. And it's from those figures that The Spectator made its projections. But not everyone agrees with that. Writing in The Independence, the formidable figure of Janet Street Porter begs to differ. The headline of her article says, I believe in God, and so do most Brits, whatever the latest surveys tell you. She says, most Brits are secret believers. They have faith, but just don't want to admit it. And then talking about her own personal faith, she says, These days, people are astonished to discover I believe in God. She says, it's like admitting you have a huge boil on your bum. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure that's true, but I think I'd I'd still think twice before asking the prayer team to lay hands on me for healing in the ministry time. Now, obviously, we don't say bum in church. Uh, We say gluteus maximus. But, of course, that can be taken the wrong way as well, if you're not careful. So who's right? I don't want to quote too many figures, because bearing in mind something else that Mark Twain said, which is that there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. But the good news, from the church's point of view, is that around half the population still say that they believe in a God or some other form of higher spiritual power. 
The bad news comes when you compare this 50% or so of people who believe that there's a God to another statistic. Only 5% of the population are part of a church. In other words, only one in every 10 people who believe that there is a God are finding him in our churches. So although the spectator quite rightly points out that a projection is not the same thing as a prediction, something is clearly wrong. For some reason, there is an enormous credibility gap between God and the organisations who represent him. Nine out of ten people who find God credible are struggling to find the church credible. Now, I haven't yet come across any survey that tells us uh, exactly why that might be. But if we were to ask everyone here today to take part in that kind of a survey as to why you think that is, it would be fascinating to see the answers. But in the absence of that, and since I've got the microphone, I thought I would take a stab at it for us this morning. Now, just to say at the beginning, I'm not going to be talking about any particular churches or any particular denominations. I'm just talking about the church in a general way. And I am definitely not saying, look at the vineyard because we've got all these things right. God forbid that we should be so arrogant. So when I talk about us, I'm talking about us, the church at large, which includes us, the vineyard, as much as anyone So a group of friends of someone who comes here regularly came to one of our Christmas services and afterwards he said to them, how was it? And they said, it wasn't what we expected. He said, what do you mean? And they struggled to find the vocabulary for it, not not coming from a church background. But eventually they said, well, it was like 21st century church. And When he told me that, I was delighted. And then suddenly, I realised we are in the 21st century. And we've been in the 21st century for nearly 20 years. Now, of course, they meant it as a compliment. But when you think about it, actually, it really isn't. What they were saying was, they expect churches to be like museums to the past. What they were expecting was... 18th century church, or 19th century church, or maybe, let's be generous, 20th century church. And that actually gives us our alternative title for today's talk. If the death of the church sounds a bit too morbid, when the kids ask you over Sunday lunch, what did Steve talk about? As, of course, they surely will. You can say... He talked about the 21st century church instead. And since your kids were all born in the 21st century, they'll look at you as if you're weird. They'll give you one of those looks that says, duh, what else would the church be? And go back to their chicken nuggets. Now, if the church was a business and we were pitching it on Dragon's Den, you would think that they would be climbing over themselves to invest Or you would in terms of the product that's on offer. Because we have access to the most compelling product in the world. We are offering a relationship with God himself. But we also know full well from Dragon's Den that it's not just the product that investors are interested in. 
As Vineyard Pastor Jay Pathak says, you can have a great story badly told. Why do we buy stuff on Amazon rather than somewhere else? It's because Amazon makes it as easy as possible for us rather than as difficult as possible. The product is the product. But the overall shopping experience matters to people as well. Amazon doesn't change the product, but it cares about how it reaches us. Amazon makes you feel that they're thinking about their customer, not just thinking about their product. Now, for various reasons, I hesitate to use Amazon as a metaphor for the church, but I think we can learn something from it. Because too often as churches, we come across as if we're in the horse and cart business rather than the delivery business. So I wonder what things need to change if the spectator is going to be wrong for that nine out of ten people who believe in God to be able to find him in our churches. And I want to suggest to you six simple things. Number one, the mission of the church is not to entertain the religious, but to extend the kingdom. Someone once said that the church is the only club that exists for its non-members. But much of the time you would think that it was the other way around. We have to stop orienting what we do and how we do it around the insiders. One of our local pubs is like that. It's like one of those bars in a Western movie when a stranger walks in and it all goes quiet as all the locals turn and stare at him. Tumbleweed blowing down the aisle. Although it says welcome on the door, it doesn't feel like that. You would be amazed, or perhaps you wouldn't be amazed, at how insider-focused most churches are without realising it. How successfully they convey the impression that they're only there to serve the regulars. The language and the content reflect that. Nothing's really explained for folks who don't come from a church background because the regulars don't need it explained. Which either tells you that guests and visitors aren't welcome or that no one ever expects a guest or visitor to be there in the first place. We have to stop in our sermons, we have to stop dropping in, passing references to a Bible story or a Bible character as if Everyone in our audience will obviously know who they are and why they're relevant to what we're saying. It's as if churches talk in a secret code that's only understood to the religious insiders. So we need to change that. We need to explain who Moses is and who Paul is and why no one in the Bible seems to have a surname, apart from Jesus, of course. Now, the reason that most churches stay at the size of 65 people or less is because, coincidentally, that's reckoned to be the maximum number that any one person can know. So, there's an inbuilt default to not wanting your church to grow because then, horror of horrors, I might not know everybody anymore. They say that most people who come to a church for the first time make their decision as to whether it's somewhere they can see themselves feeling at home within two minutes of arriving. Which is why the car park team and the welcome team and the hospitality team 
have the most important roles on a Sunday morning. Not the worship team, and certainly not the preaching team, sadly. Because most people will already have made their decision whether this is a church for them long before the first note or the first bad joke. The business of the church is introducing people who believe there is a God to that God that they've been believing in but haven't yet met. The metaphor is by no means perfect, but we are like a dating service. We help people understand who God is and what he's like and how he thinks and how he feels about things and the things that are important to him and the things that aren't important to him so that we naturally and inevitably fall more and more in love with him as a result. Number two, our good news needs to be Jesus' kind of good news. I don't know if you know this, but the word gospel means literally good news. But somehow, the way the church has ended up telling it so often makes it feel like bad news. Because too many Christians, frankly, are focused on telling people how sinful they are rather than how loved they are. The church has become way better known for what it's against than what it's for. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul expresses astonishment when he's writing his letter to the early church in Rome. Romans 2.4, he says, Guys, don't you realise that it's the goodness of God, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, to want to change. He didn't actually say guys in the original, that's just me, um, but the point is still the same. It's the goodness of God, not the tut-tutting of Christians. It's when we are overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness and kindness towards us, how much he loves us and welcomes us and accepts us, just as we are, broken, selfish, sinful. That is what captures our hearts to want to change, to be the kind of person that he will want us to be. And that, of course, is what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament over and over again. The other thing that the church seems to miss is that the centre of Jesus' message wasn't just that everybody should love each other and play nicely together. The centre of Jesus' message was that in him and through him, the kingdom of God had arrived in this world. The power and presence of God that he demonstrated in his life and ministry had arrived and it wasn't going to be leaving. It's a bit like in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when Aslan was on the move and it says the snow in Narnia began to melt. The spell of the white witch that it would always be winter was broken by a greater power. And C.S. Lewis put it absolutely brilliantly when he talked about the deep magic from before the dawn of time, which said that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards, which is what happened at the cross. Something broke in the spiritual realm and death itself started working backwards. So for us, now today, the kingdom of God is here. The power and the presence of God 
is here. But we see all around us in this world that it's not all here yet. The coming of the kingdom began with Jesus' first coming. That ice is thawing, the snow is melting. Right now, we experience that in part, but not yet in all of its fullness, which will come when Jesus returns again. Number three, the church shouldn't just preach good news to people, it should be good news to people. You know, so often the church has only seemed interested in saving souls, in offering good news in the spiritual realm, while people are left to suffer and be in need in the material realm. Johnny Cash sang, you're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. And when the church only seems interested in saving people's souls and not the saving that they need in the rest of life, the message that we are sending is that must be all that God is interested in as well. But when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he didn't qualify that as being just the spiritually poor. When he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he didn't qualify it as just Spiritual favour. It was both and, not either or. I'm quoting here from Jesus' first sermon, his mission statement in Luke chapter 4. And I think the reason for this is because the church has been terrified of appearing to be substituting a social gospel for a spiritual gospel. Afraid people will think that it's teaching salvation by works instead of salvation by faith. So to make darn sure it avoids that risk and stays doctrinally pure, it spiritualized everything. But what it's failed to see in doing that is that God cares passionately about the whole person. Now, what I'm about to say is not about the vineyard, but this is why our food bank gave away, and wait for this, 569 tonnes of food in 2017, providing 69,000 meals. And it's why we gave away 850 tonnes, providing 105,000 meals in 2018. And it's why we have five staff and 40 volunteers giving away furniture and beds and household stuff that we collect and deliver, and baby clothes and buggies and school uniform and helping rough sleepers all for free because God loves people unconditionally. So we do too. That's why 25% of the church's income, your giving, goes directly on compassion ministries in the Vale of Aylesbury. Number four, we need to stop saying that none of the peripheral stuff matters. That it doesn't matter if the place we're inviting people into is cold and uncomfortable and basically miserable. I remember someone saying to me when Lynn and I first started leading here about six years ago, he said, nothing else matters as long as God shows up. Which sort of sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? You'd be a brave person to disagree with him. But I want to say, yes, everything else does matter. There are enough barriers to people coming to church in the first place without loading even more on them when they get here. 
So yes, it does matter if it's cold and uncomfortable and no one explains anything and you don't know where the loos are or whether your children are allowed to go to the children's activities and whether you're allowed to feed your baby somewhere or who you can ask if you've got a question. Doing everything that we can to help people enjoy their experience of church is in no way incompatible with our priority and our goal being the presence of God. Instant coffee and dry biscuits that you have to pay 20p for is not an indispensable part of the gospel so far as I'm aware. But generous hospitality is. Because generous hospitality is part of who God is and what he's like. So why not make all of the peripheral stuff as easy as possible for people and as stress-free as possible so they can just focus on the main event, which is to personally meet with God? Uh, Number five, the church needs to welcome everyone to belong before you believe and to come as you are and to really mean it. Now, traditionally, it's tended to come across the other way around. Once you're ready to say that you believe certain things, then you can be part of our community. So that's kind of like the prize on offer if you pray the prayer. But until then, you're not one of us. You're what they call a non-Christian. Now, there are several problems uh, with that approach, uh, but the main one is that it doesn't seem to be what Jesus did seems that he invited his disciples to come and join in with what he was doing, to be with him, to listen to what he had to say, to ask lots of questions, to have a go themselves, to pray for people themselves, and even to make mistakes and to learn from it. He allowed people to check him out, to see if he was authentic at first hand. He let them get up close and personal and see if God was in what he was doing. Do you know the main criticism that Jesus got from the religious elite was that he was too welcoming to people? That he didn't start with what needed changing in their lives. He let them come as they are. People said he didn't drop enough Bible bombs on people, in Mike Pilovac's famous phrase. He didn't put them right enough He just loved them and made friends with them and let them hang out with him. And the reason that he did that is not because there wasn't stuff in their lives that needed to change. The point was because Jesus' main priority was for people to get it that God loved them so much, unconditionally, right where they were at, and that he understood, God understood, how rubbish life could be for people. And the more broken someone was, the more that life had screwed them over, the more that Jesus went out of his way to make sure they knew how much God loved them unconditionally as they were. I can't think of any place in the Gospels, which is the the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, I can't think of any place where Jesus asked someone to become a Christian in our terms, before he welcomed them to come and belong first, even Judas. We need to allow people to check us out, to see if we're authentic, 
to see if God is in what we're doing with no pressure to change, just like Jesus did. And then see what happens, see what God does. And then finally and briefly, the church has to be a place where it's not only okay to have questions, it's actually encouraged as well. Is that not how children learn? By asking lots of questions, including lots of difficult questions. Like, Daddy, where do babies come from? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. To which, of course, the answer is, you need to ask your mother. (laughs) But so often, when it comes to church, you get the impression that questions really aren't allowed. They're really not welcome. But God made us to have inquiring minds. He doesn't get insecure about questions, even if his church does. The classic definition of theology is faith seeking understanding. And where does understanding come from? Inquiring minds, asking questions, and seeking the answers. The church has got to satisfy the intellectually curious. After all, I think it is fair to say that God himself is pretty smart. So there's no reason to think that he doesn't love having smart people in his church. We've got to get our heads around the fact that the Christian faith is not under threat from good people asking good questions with a good attitude. And we also have to be prepared to say, I don't actually know sometimes to some of those questions. I think that people are probably more put off by Christians pretending that we do have all the answers when, quite obviously, we don't. So here's a final quick look at my six suggestions to close. I wonder whether they would make your top six list. Maybe you'd have 66 more on top of these. Mike, maybe you could come and join me. I want to just finish with... um, what that person said to me six years ago, that nothing else matters so long as God shows up. And you know, in a sense, he was right, but I'd like to put that a little bit differently. At the end of the day, unless what we do here is all about the presence of God, then all of the rest, all of this is indeed a waste of time. And that's why our favourite prayer in the vineyard is one of the oldest prayers in the ancient church. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Because we have a God who wants to engage with us, who wants to know us intimately and to be loved by us. Next week, I'm going to look at the question, is the angry God of the Old Testament the same as the Jesus of the new.